Nintendo Audio. If you enjoy the stories on this podcast, you'll also like the stories in my book, Filmmaking Confidential, which isn't just for filmmakers, but also all artists and really any entrepreneur. Now on Amazon.com and Audible.com bestseller. I just want to say thank you to all of you who ordered it. If you haven't yet picked it up, it's available wherever books are sold in most countries around the world. To find out more, check out FilmmakingConfidential.com and SteveBalderson.com. And thank you. I'm Steve Balderson, and you're listening to the Filmmaking Confidential Podcast. Every week we meet with filmmakers, writers, actors, artists, and other notables. Many episodes include questions or commentary from other filmmakers listening to the conversation. Today's guest is actor and writer Jennifer Grace. Jennifer has been working as a professional actor since 1997, most notably in a record-shattering run as Emily Webb, in Tony Award-winning director David Cromer's critically acclaimed production of Our Town, for which she was recognized with a Theatre World Award for Outstanding Off-Broadway Debut. In addition to numerous stage credits, Jennifer has appeared in a number of television shows, such as Inside Amy Schumer, Veep, and Billions. Her film credits include I See You with Helen Hunt, Kelly and Cal with Juliette Lewis, and my film, The Casserole Club. Were you always a performer? It's interesting that you ask that question because I have recently been thinking a lot and people have been saying to me, you should direct. And so I've been thinking about the, the progression from act, from performer to director. And I, I was, so I was actually just thinking back to my childhood, like what are the things that could have led me to where I am in this moment? <laughs> and the one thing I have to say is that I, um, it, it's twofold. One, yes, I always um, was putting on little, little shows, right? Either just with, with my, myself, my body, um, you know, making everyone in the apartment complex pay a penny to come see me sing Christmas carols or whatever. And then I would cast all of the extras. Like you can be in it, but you're just going to be standing while I, you know, do a 10 minute (laughs) solo. Um, But so then it's that, yes, I was always performing in some way, whether like that or, you know, setting up elaborate scenes with my toys and making these miniature stories. But the other component is I was quite bossy and I wanted to not only be I did. It was never enough to want to be in the story. Um, I think I lost the track of that sort of as I became an actor in my early days of being an actor. That the component that was missing was that, yeah, I want to be in the story, but I also want to steer it in, you know, fundamental ways. So I'm sort of getting back to that. Did you theater and school and all that stuff? I always did it, I suppose, but not in that. It's I guess the, the thing is, I, I hesitate because because I do know folks who um, had access to what I would consider professional training or exposure to professional performing arts that I didn't have access to. So I think in my bumbling way, I was doing it very early and was mostly, you know, self, self-led, self-taught because I didn't, I don't come from a family of, you know, of patrons of the arts. They just <laughs> were not that 
we're not that kind. And, um, you know, the high school I went to, you know, very, very small. No, it's not like there was a drama department or even a promise that there would be a play every year. And if there was a play, it was, you know, some it was like the, the, the play version of um, made for TV special. It was like, you know, made for high schools. You're not going to see this on Broadway. It's like, you know, <laughs> why are all the girls mean to Sarah? Like plays like that. I always use the name Sarah. Uh, so, so, I mean, I was always interested in it. I don't think I, I think, you know, one of my deep uh, insecurities is that I feel like I was the, the poor kid that didn't have access which is, you know, it's not good or bad in terms of like, if you stick with it and if you want to do it. But I've always been jealous of people who, you know, tell stories about like, I remember, you know, when my, my folks took me to see my broad, my first Broadway show when I was six years old and it was cats and I was hooked. And that was not <laughs> ever, ever, ever me. Well, what was your first Broadway show? Right before I moved to New York to stay, I went there to audition uh, and it was December and I saw The Seagull, you know, by Chekhov on Broadway and it starred Kristen Scott Thomas. And it was, I mean, I, I couldn't, I could not. I, <laughs> it was so great. And she was so, I mean, I was literally in, you know, the, the nosebleed seats. I was in the back row of this huge theater at the moment, you know, there's a the, uh, spoiler alert. Uh, her son kills himself at the end. I mean, it's a checkoff play. I'm not ruining anything. You should know that play. Um, but so, so there's this moment where he goes off stage. He's in the other room, and you hear the gunshot, and she's in. She's on stage, and in her body language, it was the most curious thing to see her go from sort of her spine having energy in it to this without dialogue, without words to see her transform from the back of the fucking theater into a woman who knows that her child, what her child has done. So it was pretty incredible. That would have been an amazing first experience for sure. Yeah. yeah. And then I've seen some things on, on uh, Broadway. They're pretty shitty too. And it made me think, Oh, right. So Broadway's not, it's not the brass ring necessarily. It's just a, a place where you can see plays. Exactly. Yeah. So you studied in college and then you did, was Chicago the first place you went? Yeah. And yeah. what I mean, drew I, you there? I, many of my friends um, were, you know, a year, two years or so older than I, and they all migrated to Los Angeles. Um, and there was a, there was a time when I was getting close to graduation where I thought that's where I'm going to be as well. And so I visited, I don't know, a handful of times before I graduated I just sort of got the impression that it wasn't for me. It's not that I didn't like it. I just think that I had enough self-awareness then to know that I, um, I wasn't ready. I didn't know who I was. And so, you know, a, a town like Los Angeles, a, you know, a scene like Hollywood can really mess a person up. If you don't go in going, you know, this is what you get. And I, you know, have, things to offer you, but I'm not going to kill myself mentally, emotionally to try to transform into a thing that's impossible for me to be. I mean, it just, you know, a young person with stars in their eyes, I think it's very easy to not, not know your inner voice, who your artist is, and just try to be the thing that other people want you to be. And they're never going to, it's never going to be a suggestion to, to be your authentic self, 
unless you already know what that is and you can show it to them. LA was uh, kind of, I toyed with it, but I knew quickly that, that I wanted more. I wanted to practice more and that's what Chicago gave me. Cool. And did you, when you got to Chicago, did you have a good network there? Good support group or anything? No, <laughs> no, I didn't. Uh, I remember sitting at a bar in Kansas with a friend of mine who is a music theater guy. So, and, and I, that's not my, I mean, I sing, but I'm, I don't do music theater. Um, so we didn't run in exactly the same circles, but we had the same general kind of desire to do work on stage. And I remember telling him, you know, I think I'm not going to go to LA and I'm not sure what to do about that. And I don't remember which of the two of us started floating this idea of Chicago. But then the conversation was basically, you know, I've never been there. Well, oh, I've never been there either. I hear it's I hear it's really happening there. I hear that's the place where you can go and fail and it's safe. You can experiment and there's so much theater going on there that you can find your tribe. Um, and so we just sort of unseen decided that's what we were going to do. Neither of us had ever been. And we just we went and we didn't have a community. And, you know, uh, and, and my friend, I would later discover, you know, was also not out with his sexuality yet. So there was the two of us in a city sort of dealing with how do we reach out when we know no one um, but each other. And we don't do exactly the same thing. It was really that first year was just about trying to figure out, I did a lot of temp jobs and that's a great place to meet. That's a great way to meet actors, other actors. <laughs> so um, meeting actors on jobs and saying, you know, who do you work with? What do you see? What do you like? Are you in a show? Can I see your show? Where are you going after your show? Are you going to get drinks? Is this an actor bar? I'll come back here again if it's an actor bar. And just sort of like, you know, being slightly crazy-ish, but you know, when you're in your early twenties, everybody is anyway. It's creepier the older you get, but <laughs> I think when you're, you know, no one knows what they're doing or who their friends are when you just move to a city and you're right out of college. And so it felt like I was in with a lot of people who were also going, yes, I please come see my show. I'd love for people to see my show. And I want to have a drink after, please come. I barely know the people I'm in the show with anyway. So Chicago at that time, you know, late nineties, early aughts felt very, um, celebratory about the newness and the the unknown the what all is out there and how can we connect that's what the the theater scene felt like did it take a long time before you felt settled there that's a great question i don't know i <laughs> i feel like i was starting to get settled there when i moved to new york <laughs> um and that would have been what nine nine ish years after nine ten years after i first got there um but in retrospect no like looking back i think and the, the first year too that i was there i moved in the fall and then that winter was record-breaking snows, snows up to people's necks. It was post-apocalyptic. You couldn't walk on the sidewalks because the snowdrifts were over people's heads and, you know, people were stuck in their houses forever. And it was so freezing cold. I remember being on the train platform and icicles on my eyelashes and in my nose um, and thinking, oh God, what have I done? This is, why would anyone be here? <laughs> this is so awful. Chicago is a very working class and that applies to the acting world, the, the theater community, the people who base their, um, their creative world out of Chicago. It's not a star-making town. 
And I think that's kind of lovely because people don't expect to be treated like they're anything different than anyone else. Everyone who's in a show is, you know, the star of the show. It's always an ensemble experience. And so I think because of that, it wasn't until in hindsight, I looked back and thought, God, I really did. I booked show after show after show and worked with this person and that person and was always working as much as I wanted that I sort of realized, yeah, no, I did settle in really quick. I think I also just suffer from, because I grew up in a military family, I always feel like the new kid. And also I landed in a small town growing up. And yes, I, I moved there in the fourth grade, but it was such a small town that, you know, really only a few other people moved there between then and when I graduated. So I always felt like I was the, one of the newest kids. Lead me up to leaving Chicago and what took you to New York? I was a member of a theater company in Chicago called The Hypocrites. That had been my artistic home kind of, well, that, that was the very first show that I, that I did in Chicago was with The Hypocrites. And I worked with them consistently at the time that I was there. And in my last year in Chicago, we did a production of Our Town and invited a director who um, was not a company member, but was a friend of the company and, you know, a sort of a, a guy about town in the Chicago theater circles. This guy, um, David Cromer, who asked him to come in and direct the, the show. And I was, you know, excited that David was going to be working for us because he had a great reputation, but not excited about doing Our Town, really. So I was surprised when David called and said, hey, do you want to <laughs> do you want to play the lead in Our Town? So we we did that production at the same time that a much bigger theater in um, Chicago called Looking Glass theater did a production of Our Town. Almost simultaneously, we were doing the, the productions, our own productions. And, and the one at Looking Glass featured um, Looking Glass ensemble members like um, Joey Slotnick and David Schwimmer was playing uh, George. And so, you know, we, ha- we went into it with the assumption that we're just going to get buried by this bigger theater company that had, you know, star power and, and whatever. And David Crummer was really able to unlock something in that play that was that was special and that people got excited about. And so the show, the show did very, very well. Uh, we sold out our, our first run of it immediately. And then because of the way that shows work in Chicago, you don't just extend and extend and extend like you do in, in New York. You, you book a space for a finite amount of time. You run your show for six weeks or eight weeks or whatever, and then you close and then that's it. Everybody moves on. Again, it's not a city of star makers, right? The the press doesn't nece- they they don't necessarily you know extend shows or close shows the next day. They just don't have that power in Chicago. But what did happen was because the demand to see the show was so high, and so people people really wanted to get in. We brought it back for a second run, and it sold that run out immediately as well. And then the New York producers decided that they wanted. David to come to New York and do the show there. But there was no guarantee that um, that people from the Chicago production would would get to go with it. It wasn't going to be a transfer of the same production. Each of us were offered the chance to audition for our role back. And so I went to New York and that was when I saw the seagull in December and auditioned with lots of lovely, much younger, very New York sort of um, uh, actors who were who were going to also be auditioning for Emily Webb and 
they kept me, they kept me on the hook for a long time. It wasn't until a month later, I got the call where, when they said, uh, the New York producers said, listen, you've got the job. You've got one week to get here until, you know, rehearsals start. And you just went, I just went, I just went, I, um, you know, I was, uh, I was a newlywed. I'd been married three months at that point. Obviously, I didn't. I didn't um, audition for the show without really discussing it with my with my partner. And you know, we had both felt like because he he was an actor as well, and we both felt like you know Chicago's great and we love it here. But I think in particular, he he was really feeling like you know we're not getting any younger. And if we're, wouldn't it be great to at some to be able to check off? we did the New York actor thing. And especially as people, we were in our early thirties then um, with a level of accomplishment under our belts that, you know, we weren't going to be going into to the New York scene. Well, we weren't going to be probably uh, out late carousing and getting mugged and, you know, anybody can get mugged. I, I don't mean it like that, but that we would be coming into a city that can eat people up. Um, with a sense of who we are and with an eye to what it takes to protect ourselves. So he dropped that in my in my ear of like, you know, maybe if they ask you to audition, what do you think you should? Because we could do that. But yeah, I think if it was just me on my own, I probably would have been scared to, to commit to something like that. But I had good encouragement. And of course, when you did commit to it, you had no idea that it would go on for so long. No idea. <laughs> No idea. It, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, it is the longest continuously running production of Our Town in the United States history and, and maybe the world. I think I think the world. So, yeah, it's uh, certainly I didn't expect in my early mid 30s to be uh, associated with, you know, having played Emily Webb longer than anyone else in the history of this great American play. I mean, I don't, I, I never considered myself an ingenue. So it's a weird association to make, but yeah. Actress, Jennifer Grace. Another wonderful guest is cult icon, Mink Stoll. John Waters will tell you a story that I threw a saxophone at him. We didn't speak <laughs> after we finished filming Pink Flamingos. I moved out. You can hear my full interview with Mink at filmmakingconfidential.com or by subscribing for free to this podcast. We'll be right back with Jennifer Grace. Stay with us. I'm Steve Balderson, and this is the Filmmaking Confidential podcast. I'm back with Jennifer Grace. What David did that I think that his genius is in his ability to just separate what matters and what doesn't. He, he works really efficiently and really simply. So he went back to the idea of that first line in the play, no scenery, no props. And so he interpreted that to mean, this is just the people. It's gonna mean something different to the people who see it now, if they see it in oldie timey costumes, those are going to be characters that they don't relate to. So let's put the actors in modern day clothes. And so the costume design uh, evolved from what each of us in the show, what we were showing up to rehearsal in. And at the time I was a little, I was a little scrappy, cutesy, 
thing. And I would, I put my hair up in these tiny little buns. That's just how I wore my hair. And David was like, that's it. That's great. You're going to wear it that way in the first act. So that became my little girl had these little buns that I already did. And uh, we all had versions and they were all costumes, but we were costumed to look like we had just walked in from wherever we had been. Then working off of that, it all sort of came out from there. The lighting design became, what if the lights are just up and it looks like a rehearsal? So everyone is in the room together. I see the audience, the audience sees me. We, um, and we performed it in the round. So there was no boundary between, and there were, you know, uh, audience members on stage with us. We would walk through and around them and it became about, our town is this, is we're in this theater together. It's not, you know, it's not some bullshit old story about stuff that doesn't matter to you. And if that's what you think it's about, you're missing it, which is the, what the play is saying, right? That you're missing it. You're not paying attention. And then all of that builds to the third act, which is incredible to me because David, when he called me and said, hey, I want you to play Emily. He had all this stuff already planned out. So he said in that phone call, he said, Do you, would you want to play Emily? And I said, I don't know. I don't think I'm right for the role. I think I'm too old and I'm too whatever. I don't know. Um, and he was like, well, just hear me out. I want to, I want to, I want you to um, sort of hear my idea. And he was like, I'm thinking about building a fake wall at one side of the theater. So at the end of the play, when Emily goes to the graveyard and, and sits down and then she says, I want to live over one day of my life. I want to go back. Up until then, all we see is just, you know, lights up. Everybody's in their regular costumes. We can see the audience. The audience can see us. We haven't acted like anything special is going on. We're not doing phony accents. We're not doing New England accents. And he said, so then when the stage manager says, all right, you can go back. We're going to literally break open this wall. And there, for three minutes, however long that scene is, we're going to see a hyper-realistic, turn-of-the-century New England farmhouse kitchen. We're going to see through the back window the light of slow morning dawn coming up. The mother's going to come down the stairs in this, like, immaculate turn of the century dress. The father comes in. They all have those New England accents. And the mother is going to, because the scene takes place, the, the, it's the Emily Webb's 12th birthday. The mother is cooking breakfast. So we're going to have a, a, a working stove and we're going to fry bacon. And as the scene goes on, the smell of bacon starts to just sort of infiltrate everyone's senses in the theater. And the effect was devastating on people. I mean, it was, you know, it was overwhelming to be in that moment when the curtain came back and hear the gasps because people had sat with us for two hours at that point, seeing nothing, nothing, nothing. We're underplaying everything. Every conversation is about the chicken feed or, you know, then for this little sliver of time, they feel what Emily feels, which is, oh, my God, why didn't I pay attention to how special my life was? I didn't think it was enough. I didn't think there was anything worth remembering. 
And so that was the genius of what what David did. And, it, you know, the joke is that it gets reduced down to the bacon. And I like to complain that the bacon was far and away the star of that show and fuck that bacon. (laughs) (laughs) But but no, but I mean, I get it. It is there's something in the metaphor. There's something in that saying of like, you know, wake up and smell the bacon. There's something in how that smell makes many of us in this country, at least think of our our childhood of of waking up to your one of your parents cooking breakfast. Did you do any TV work while you were in New York? Yes. I know that you made your film debut in my movie. Yes. But if you were in a television show or something yeah. that had been filmed, uh-huh. how uh, was no, that? that was after. That would have been after uh, your film. Um, in, I want to say 2012. In fact, no, I know it was 2012 because it has this awful, dubious distinction of the first TV show I shot um, was Inside Amy Schumer. And... Uh, we shot on the day of the Sandy Hook massacre, which I didn't know until we were released from set. And uh, I was on, I was on the um, I was in the van on the way back home, and I got the news, and I was like, "What a mind-boggling juxtaposition to be like having this thrilling experience of shooting comedy, which I love, and I don't get to do as much as I wish I did, and having this kind of joyful experience, and then coming out and." and seeing such awful news. Yeah. So I remember exactly when it was. When did we do Casserole Club? 10, 2010. What was your feeling about film itself? I love film and I love that it, there's a freedom. You can be so much more, you can be really versatile if subtlety is allowed into your bag of tricks And that's a difficult thing to do with stage work when you're, you know, wondering if the people in the the far left corner are going to be able to see you because you're turned away from them or whatever, if they're going to get this bit of information. I think there's a freedom in um, just bringing it all down because in a lot of ways, film means that you have an audience of one. It's just your relationship with the camera and what you're giving to the camera which is not to say that you should spike the camera and do all your scenes right to lens, of course. But it is about this thing of like, you know, it can be really, really little and really beautiful. And I think the smallness of it is just really exciting to me. What is something that excites you about using your abilities as a performer or writer Mm -hmm or director in sharing with the world? What are some things that excite you that you want to, that drive you to share? A lot of it comes from my experiences, life experiences. I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm not sure how anybody can uh, <laughs> derive a, a, a desire to do something that's not based on where they come from, right? And so for me, that is fueled a lot by being a woman in this business and how I, and also really post our town, the way that people tried to put me in the box of like, okay, now you're going to keep playing this little girl. You're going to keep playing this innocent little girl. Um, and I was going on auditions that I just was clearly not right for in my late thirties. And you're calling me in to play, you know, this junior high school kid next to people who were actually junior high school kids. So I think that I was fueled by, um, 
it's it, it it seems to me to be very true that movies, TV shows, plays, they kind of don't know what to do with women after your 20s and until your mother courage, which is, you know, a great old lady role or, you know, until if in TV terms, I, I say in, you know, once you get out of soccer mom or if you maybe you're on the stripper track, maybe you're on whatever the version of your young woman is, then you kind of don't do anything until you get to district attorney. And like, it's infuriating to me how, how many human experiences are overlooked. And so I'm really interested in, as a writer, as a director, as an actor, I'm interested in what about the rest of us? How about the stories for those of us who aren't your mom who makes the best granola? Or how, how about let's have some roles for women where they're not commodified or they're not there just to be a sex worker or to be, um, you know, like a saint, the, the saint, the virgin, the sex worker, tired, tired of those things. That, uh, my experience as a, as, a, as a mother, as a widow, like I feel like we don't talk enough about the ugly parts of life. And as a result, when the ugly parts of life hit us, because they will inevitably, that's what being alive is like, we don't have the tools. We don't know how to deal with them. Because we're not being shown, we're, it's not being normalized for us. So I'm interested in finding the beauty in the, the odd, the outcast, the ugly, the, 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 the sort of awfulness, because I think that there always is humor and warmth and growth to be found in those places. And I like looking for them there. That's beautiful. Oh, thank you. And I am so <laughs> excited to see your, your latest creation. Oh, thank you. I'm very, very excited about it too. I'm also, um, you know, since, since you and I spoke about my, the, the draft of, of my piece, is this sort of speaks to what you were talking, what you were asking me. Uh, so I have made one of the characters now is um, explicitly non-binary. And that was important to me because I, I, I'm always trying to think about how to make room for folks who are something other than white, straight, you know, cis male. What about the rest of the folks? And so I'm excited to have that character and to be portrayed by a person who is non-binary as well. And, you know, to get that person's okay to make this adjustment was something that I'm really excited about. Cool. Yeah. I yeah. was raised an army brat, so I'm, I'm an army brat too. Okay, so you understand. It, yeah. There's there it was there a sense of you were always that you were always the new kid. Mm. That you were always having to not only had a chance to reinvent yourself, but you had to find what the dots were to fit in. I don't like how they would, would lead to your acting. It's yeah, you know, uh, that is something that I always it always uh pricks my attention up when I read about it from other people in the arts, you know, whether it's music or performing or, you know, what have you, how, how many folks who had that kind of upbringing seem to gravitate that way. And, you know, I don't, it's not a thing that automatically comes to my mind, but I will say if I, if I really take the time to sit with it. Yeah. Um, the, the ending of our town, uh, 
Emily Webb has this famous speech where she just says goodbye to everything. And part of the reason that I, I think I excelled at that, I, you know, people said they liked that, is that that was always devastating for me. Being little and feeling like I've got it. These are my folks. I finally fit in with this group and then saying goodbye, goodbye. And, and so there's something in that that formed me. And, and also, yeah, like this idea of I'm going to have to rely on myself for entertainment to create the stories that I am going to be my own sort of traveling circus, it, even if it's just in my imagination. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely comes from being an army brat. It's just interesting to hear someone else say that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. And, that, you know, that's not something that people um, have asked me very often, but I always note it when I see it in interviews. So um, I'm glad, I'm glad that you made that connection. I think oh, yeah. that most people wouldn't. And if you've lived it, then you kind of get it, I think. Yeah. You find that at least I did. And I started out in theater too. Uh-huh. The gypsy life fit in with, with the dynamics of how I was raised. Yeah. Uh, I had no problem living out of a footlocker. <laughs> yes. That's yes. Just, that's just how I, mean, I traveled for years. I always, uh, I always joke that the thing about gravitating towards theater or acting in general, any kind of working on creative stuff like that, is that with each project, I lovingly call it, it's the first day of school. These are going to be my, my new batch of friends. And yeah, I see it as a new what? family. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a because chance. Because you formed that kind yeah. of unity. Mm-hmm. And that was always what drew me to theater. It was, uh, you know, people had religion and I said, well, theater was always my temple. Yeah, I would go there, and those people were the like mind. They were the kind of the the outcasts, and it felt like when you bonded with them, mm-hmm. the experience, the connection. That's why when you said our town, I thought, oh man, that had to be amazing because that kind of family unity yeah. develops. Yeah, I mean, I'm still friends with with all yeah. those folks. Yeah, see, yeah. I am too with people that I've known for years ago. I worked with and and. New York would ran. I was on a subway and I ran into a buddy and we just kind of looked at each other and I said, how you doing, man? He goes, Hey, great. What are you doing in New York? I said, I'm here for a friend's wedding. And we hadn't seen each other in probably 20 years, but it was like that immediate connection. Thank you. You're welcome. Hey Kim, do you have a a question or comment for Jen? Uh, How long were you doing the Our Town show in New York city? First I did it in um, Chicago and then I did it in New York for uh, almost two years and then I did it in uh, Los Angeles, in Santa Monica. Um, and then I did it one final time in Chicago. But the longest stretch was in New York. That was almost two years. What are the tips or secrets in playing the same part for, for so long? That's a great question. Um, and that was one of the things that I was really scared of. When we were getting ready to open in New York, there was already this feeling like this is probably going to be something special and it could run for a really long time. Um, You know, and those of us that had done it in Chicago, we had sort of we knew that we had a special thing. Um, And then, you know, we had our New York friends who joined the show. The, the man who, who played my father in our town had done these incredible long runs of all kinds of, you know, shows on Broadway, Mamma Mia and uh, Hairspray and on and on and on. And I remember sitting with him one night before we opened and just saying, I'm, I'm really scared. I've never done a show for longer than a month or two. And he had, I thought, like the, the most beautiful visual language to talk about how he 
sustained uh, performance for a long time. And he said, he said, I love long runs. That's all I want to do is long runs. And he said, I think of it as a marathon. When you're running a marathon, you don't sprint out (laughs) of the gate, you know, you pace yourself and you just sort of slow and steady get there. It's not, you can't look into the horizon for, for the finish line. You have to look in front of you. He, he, then he said this thing that just made so much sense to me and it clicked in my brain. He said, when you're in rehearsal for any show, what you're doing is you're really, you're putting together the blueprints of a house, a structure. And you, the cast, you are going to live in that house. You're building the bones of this thing that you will inhabit. And in a long run, you may find that, uh, you know, these, you've, you've plotted out these rooms in rehearsal. You know, I'm going to go in the living room. I'm going to go in the dining room. And then I'm going to go upstairs. And I'm going to go downstairs. You've got all that stuff plotted out, right? And you'll find in a long run that you will go sometimes to go into the room that you always go into. And the handle doesn't work. <laughs> you can't get in there because it's getting, you know, it's getting rickety. It's getting worn down. Your job as an actor is get in that fucking room. <laughs> so maybe it's maybe you're not going to go in the door anymore. Maybe you need to go outside and crawl in the window. Maybe you need to get a hammer and, you know, bust it off its hinges. But your job is to go from here to there to the other parts of the structure that you've built. You will find that the same path will get worn out. So you have to be open to new routes to get you where you go. Actress Jennifer Grace. You can see Casserole Club on Amazon Prime Video. Tune in next time for more Filmmaking Confidential. It is totally free to subscribe, and when you subscribe, you'll get upcoming new episodes automatically, and you'll have free access to all our past shows. Please leave a review to let us know how we're doing. The Filmmaking Confidential Podcast is a production of Dekanga Audio and produced by myself and Ella Spencer. Our theme music is composed by Kevin Robles. For more of the Filmmaking Confidential Podcast, head over to filmmakingconfidential.com. To learn more of my filmmaking secrets, be sure to pick up a copy of the book, Filmmaking Confidential, available on Audible, paperback, and ebook wherever books are sold. I'm Steve Balderson. Thanks for listening and spreading the word. Until next time, keep making, keep doing, keep going.